Welcome to our podcast, Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Today, we're going to break down the ninth episode of Star Trek Lower Decks, entitled Crisis Point. For this episode, we'll summarize the plot and then discuss our impressions of the show. We'll end our podcast with the most recent Star Trek news. Before we begin, please remember our analysis does contain spoilers. So if you haven't watched the episode yet, you may want to do so before listening to our comments. However, rest assured, we will not divulge any of the many jokes or Star Trek reference gags in the episode. So those moments will be fresh for you when you do get a chance to see it for yourself. Now, Gary, let's start off with the synopsis. During the cold opening, we see Ensign Mariner has succeeded in liberating a planet of lizard men from their rat overlords. But before the newly freed reptiles can bask in the sun to their heart's content, Captain Freeman arrives to stop the proceedings. She's furious that her daughter violated the Prime Directive, which quickly sends Mariner from exaltation to anger. As the two argue for the umpteenth time, the captain ends up giving the ensign the only punishment worse than the brig. Therapy. Now Mariner pays her penance, sitting down with the ship's therapist, who's equal parts bird and food pun enthusiast. Still steaming at her mother's treatment of her, she goes to the holodeck to shoot some skeet with Tindy, Rutherford, and Leonardo da Vinci. Ah. They're soon interrupted by Boimler, who wants to use the holodeck for his own business. The ensign is interviewing with Freeman later in the day for an advanced diplomacy workshop. To prep for it, he wants to practice on a simulated version of the crew, which is he created using archives from several years of private logs. While Boimler starts his pre-interviewing to get a sense of greeting etiquette, Mariner gets a great idea. She programs, she actually reprograms into the Boimler system some new parameters and writes a quick script. Later, the simulated bridge fades away to reveal nothing but a title. Crisis Point, The Rise of Vindicta. <laughs> so Mariner has gone rogue with her own form of therapy that is using Boimler's program to create a cinematic form of catharsis. While Tendi and Rutherford are excited at playing a part in this adventure, Boimler refuses to participate, angry that all of his prep work has been hijacked. As the others leave, he goes from dodging approaching credits to falling into the first scene as the Cerritos crew is enjoying a day off of jet skiing and fun at Shaq's expense. Boimler awkwardly crashes the party to continue his pre-interviewing, but the shoehorning quickly ends when the crew is called onto a mission. They're briefed about a ship posing as a Starfleet vessel that made second contact with the planet, and the Cerritos has been recruited to investigate this imposter. The crew is immediately taken to the ship, which is revealed in a magnificent and resplendent manner. 
It's done in a cross between the flyby approach from Star Trek, the motion picture, and the overuse of the lens flare by J.J. Abrams in the Kelvin Universe films. The Cerritos arrives at the planet in question to face down with a declunked warbird. Inside is Mariner, playing the role of Vendicta, a space tyrant. She sits in the captain's chair, caked in dark eye makeup and a thirst for vengeance. At her side are the Orion pirate queen, Tindy, who objects to being stereotyped um, as an Orion, uh, Bionic Rutherford, and an obvious analog to Boimler, who is quickly killed when he brings his boss the wrong drink. Vendicta digs into Freeman, calling her a propped-up errand girl, obsessed with licking Starfleet's boots. The Cerritos crew is confused and enraptured, which is why by the time they notice her, her message is pre-recorded, it's too late, because they've been boarded. Vindicta immediately goes on a killing spree, earning a wide-eyed response from Tindy. Ramson tries to subdue her, but he is quickly shot before Boimler could even get him to reveal Freeman's food allergies. Rutherford has his own epiphany about this simulation and goes off to tell his boss, Chief Engineer Billups, that he's the best engineer in Starfleet. Despite Billups seeing Rutherford as the enemy, the two jump into action, finding some common ground as they work together to keep the ship afloat amongst all its damage. Meanwhile, Vindicta continues to tear through the Cerritos, graphically blowing up shacks with a Borg head bomb when she suggests they head to the sickbay to torture Dr. Tana. Tende sees that as one step too far for this Orion. Tende leaves the simulation saying this is not healthy and tells Mariner, this is not you. However, those words fall on deaf ears as Vindicta finally reaches the bridge and Freeman. As she continues to rip into the captain about being treated like a bad guy all the time, she shows her ambition lacks boundaries and blows up her own ship. The resulting shockwave knocks the Cerritos out of orbit, sending them crashing into the planet below. Thanks to Rutherford doing the impossible, most of the crew gets beamed out in the nick of time, leaving a select few aboard. That includes Freeman, who finally goes fist to fist with Vindicta. When Vindicta has the captain on the ropes, a savior arrives in the form of Mariner. She beams Freeman away to safety, and the fight continues between the simulated Mariner versus Vindicta, bringing the therapeutic nature of this exercise to a head. After an exploding uh, ending, Mariner comes out of the holodeck, stunned at the revelations she's been presented. As Rutherford gains further admiration for his stone-cold, soup-sipping boss, Mariner apologizes to both Tendi and Freeman for her previous behavior. The latter does not take the apology at face value, though, and we see her talk to her own therapy session about her paranoia as a mother. Boimler dives back into the simulation one last time, 
crashing the middle of Freeman's eulogy for Mariner. The ensign gets information, but definitely not what he was expecting, as Hollow Freeman reveals to the crew that Mariner was her daughter. And she underlines the impact of the revelation, saying anyone who knew about their relationship would immediately be fired and possibly court-martialed. <laughs> it's the exact opposite thing Boimler wanted to hear as he goes to his interview to see Freeman, stunned into silence. All he has is Mariner on the brain, leaving him a babbling mess for the captain that has him running out in the middle of their conversation. Despite all his preparation, Freeman perceives him as unprepared for the interview and marks him down as such. Back in the simulation, a resurrected Vindicta rises from a torpedo casing only to be shot down by Leonardo da Vinci. Followed by the signature of the Lower Deck crew's members written in the light across the sky, it was a nice button for the episode. Now let's move on to our analysis. This week's episode of Star Trek Lower Decks featured a story centered on Ensign Beckett Mariner's lone wolf buck the system approach. We have been building up to this moment since the episode's second contact. We will get into all of this later in the analysis. Okay. Okay, let's talk about the cold opening. Prime directives, rats, and lizards. Just as Veritas did last week, the crisis point delivered a cold opening that immediately threw us into the conflict of the episode. It revealed the inciting incident for Mariner's therapy session while connecting us to the age-old issue of the Prime Directive. Interfering in the political and cultural development of a planet has been both a Star Trek no-no and a reoccurring plot point across all of the various Star Trek series. Once again, Lower Decks tackle the subject in their own way. It makes sense that Mariner would want to help a race of lizard people protect themselves from being seen exclusively as food for the planet's dominant species of rats. But for her by the book, mother and captain, Mariner's actions are seen as the cause for a once peaceful planet falling into civil war. In a debate between planetary peace or the elimination of a species oppression, it would seem Starfleet prefers a cold peace over freedom. Huh. So now let's look at Mariner versus Vindicta. The bulk of this episode presents us with the holodeck simulation. At the heart of that is Mariner's therapy session where she takes on the role of Vindicta, the simulation's villain. Mariner as Vindicta is an immensely unlikable person. There's nothing good about her, which makes sense because she's Mariner's unleashed id. Vindicta is allowed to wreak havoc on everyone as an outlet for Mariner's rage for her mom. Mariner gets lost in the part. She sure does. She kills hologram versions of Boimler, Ramson, and Shax. She is culturally insensitive toward Tendi. Also, it makes sense that all of the visual references of her ship reflect a more menacing Klingon warbird. But 
The climax of this episode occurs when she confronts Freeman on the bridge of the Cerritos, only to be forced to fight a simulated version of herself. Between each blow thrown by the two halves of Mariner, a great deal is revealed about her inner psyche. We learn that she only breaks the rules because Mariner believes that's what people expect her to do. She admits to loving the warp core despite saying she's too cool for it. She tells herself she chooses to play the villain instead of taking the more difficult route of being a good officer, something we've seen happen again and again throughout the entire season. But most revealing, Mariner admits she would do anything for her mom despite her overbearing parents' behavior. Mariner shows the depth of her devotion to Freeman when she chose to sacrifice herself to distract Vindicta, learning that the self-destruct sequence on the Cerritos had been initiated. The explosion destroys everything, ending the simulation as a consolation prize to having the simulation hijacked. Boimler does discover that the captain has a chocolate allergy, though. Right. <laughs> but in all honesty, what Mariner did in this immersion therapy version of Boimler's simulation is no different to someone who plays a video game by choosing all the evil options. The way Mariner handles this reminds me of Worf using the holodeck when he needed to give in to some of his more violent Klingon tendencies. Right. And so that's that's kind of the reason why we see her kind of unleash herself. Right. And she and you know, she takes out people that she knows full well she would never try to right. harm. No. Yeah, so but let's but let's talk a little bit more about this this aspect of her being a maverick which has been played out throughout the entire season. For me, Mariner is a breath of fresh air that Starfleet really needs. It's easy for us to find Mariner appealing because we admire her fearlessness and her refusal to let protocol stand in the way of doing what's right. That's right. It's even easier because it's so familiar to us. Star Trek has been serving up this type of behavior by the show's lead character since 1966. When we've watched Kirk unilaterally make decisions about the fate of a planet, as he did in The Return of the Archons, A Taste of, of Armageddon, A Piece of the Action, or The Apple, A Private Little War, or The Cloud Miners, there's something in there that is inherent to, to the craft of what the lead character in any Star Trek series kind of presents. There are more, there are more that I could mention here. Trust me, there's a lot more that I could mention. But in all of these episodes, we see Kirk executing planetary policy making done on the fly. None of these decisions were approved by Starfleet Command beforehand. In fact, the only time where his decision proved to be incorrect was when he allowed Khan and his followers to settle on SETI Alpha 5 and Space Seed. And really, the only problem is that no one ever went back to look for, about, on about them. Because if they had, they would have discovered that there was an explosion on the other planet, which threw the uh, SETI Alpha 5 out of orbit. Right. So that's one out of ten. And I think that's a pretty good record. Yeah. 
But in all these examples, Kirk upheld the principles and values of the Federation, liberty, justice, and equality. We've been watching the exact same style exhibited by Mariner this entire season. Yep. Mariner upheld the same principles when she took that equipment to those farmers in second contact or when she helped these lizard people overthrow the rats who had been eating them. Repeatedly, she has been she has held Starfleet's values dear while going to bat for her friends and her ship. This behavior, it's what Picard described to Spock as cowboy diplomacy in unification. And even though Picard meant it as a criticism, in actuality, cowboy diplomacy is an important part of Star Trek's appeal. Mariner is just the most recent character to uphold that tradition. Yeah, good point, Gary. So let's move on and talk about Tendi. And this is more about Tendi's identity. This is more about our reaction to the information about Tendi's identity in this uh, episode. Oh, exactly. So we spent a lot of time telling you that one of the few flaws we found in Lower Decks is a gaping hole where more information about how an Orion should reside or behave. Having an Orion crew member among the four main characters should offer the writers an opportunity to explain how she became a member of Starfleet. It's hard to believe the planet joined the Federation. So then how is Tindy a member of this crew? Although it wasn't addressed fully, we did get a few new bits of information. Specifically, Tindy did not feel comfortable playing a pirate in the simulation. Yeah, that was real evident. She found taking Shaq's earring with some of his ears still attached, gross. And when Mariner kept pushing her to be an Orion space pirate, Tendi told her that not all Orions are pirates. In fact, according to Tendi, they haven't been that way for five years. <laughs> <laughs> So we're both looking forward to finding out more about uh, Tendi and, you know, more about her c culture and heritage, at least through her lens. You know, we're hoping to find more about that soon. Yeah, because it's very evident, you know, we've got one episode left. What we've learned about Boimler has been more than what we've learned about Tindy and Rutherford. In fact, those two, those last two are the ones who have suffered the most because a lot has been put into uh, centering around Mariner. Right. We got, we, we got a real clear idea, both her background through all the episodes that have been laid out that give us an idea about her. We've got some more about Boimler, but Tindy really has been a question mark when you think about yeah. it. And so hopefully in season two, we'll get more of an, the idea about what the Orions are at this point in the in the history of Star Trek. Definitely. But let's go on to the big reveal, which I think is going to be huge. Since the holodeck simulation was based on the personal logs of the crew, Boimler inadvertently discovers that Captain Freeman is Mariner's mother. Now, we've known that since the first episode, but nobody right. else has. Right. And so his knowledge of this relationship, which has already affected his interview, right. is sure to be part of the consequences in the season's finale. So that, and, and we've even seen clips of next week's episode where he reveals he knows 
that and he actually taunts um, Mariner with it. So I'm assuming that that's going to be part of what's going down and maybe the reason why we don't know the title. That's right. So let's move on and talk about our Easter eggs. And, you know, by the way, again, there were tons and tons of there Easter eggs. There was boatload. Yeah, yeah. Both for the movies as well as the TV shows. Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, I'm going to talk about mine first. So for my Easter egg, I chose the ship porn scene <laughs> inspired by Star Trek, the motion picture. Although I laughed when I saw the lower deck scene, it is actually connected to an unpleasant memory. <laughs> okay, so I became a Star Trek fan after watching the original series as a kid. Later, my sisters and I attended some of the earliest Star Trek conventions and watched the animated series. However, we never thought the original cast members would ever re reunite for a live action film. I mean, who does that? But, at that time, not very many people had ever done. I don't think anybody had done that at that time. Yeah, so when it was announced that a film was forthcoming for two years until it was released, we ate up any news about the movie. Before the film's premiere, little footage was actually released with the exception of a br of brief clips showing the newly outfitted Starship Enterprise. The night of the film's opening, we purchased tickets for the midnight show and anxiously looked forward to seeing it. However, for most fans, including me, the film turned out to be a boring dud. The film featured an unmemorable narrative with little action or character development. Moreover, the secondary characters' favorites, such as Uhura, Sulu, and Chekhov, had little to do but push buttons. Previous alien villains were inconsequential to the plot. Now, you know, honestly, it's not the worst Star Trek film ever made, but it was the biggest Star Trek disappointment of my life. So, while seeing a film referencing... Well, while seeing this film reference in Lower Decks was humorous, it evoked a memory of a Star Trek feature I'd rather forget. Yeah, yeah. But they did a good job with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was funny, and it was, it, it actually, and, and to be honest with you, it did make the ship look beautiful. I mean, they did a good job. Oh, of, they did. Of they, doing that. Yeah, 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 with animation, yeah. Yeah, with animation. Yep. Okay, let's go on to my Easter egg. And, and, and again, as Adele said, there was a boatload of them. We had a lot to choose from, but we ended up settling on just two. And mine is uh, going back to the cold opening with the scene between the rat people and the lizards. Because it's a deep, deep cut from season one, episode seven of TNG. In the episode entitled... Lonely Among Us, the Enterprise has been sent to the Beta Retner system on a diplomatic mission. The two major planets in the system are the Reptilian Soleil and the Rotans of Antica. Both have achieved space flight as well as applied for membership in the United Federation of Planets. En route to the planet Parliament, where they're going to hold their peace negotiations, the both Delegations are on the and the crew of the Enterprise discover just how far the two species animus goes. Mm -hmm. A major component of the Soleil Anakin conflict is cannibalism. They eat their enemies. Mm. 
In fact, Riker discovers that the two species have begun playing a very lethal version of hide and seek on one on another of the lower decks. And there, there's even a scene where several of the Soleil delegates are laying in wait in a hallway with a trap to capture it, an Anakin, by, but instead only succeed in ensnaring Riker. Later on, we learn from Tasha Yar there's a pool of blood outside of the Salayan quarters, only to be followed by the revelation that an Anakin has gone to the ship's cook with a re- with reptile meat, wishing to have it prepared for a meal. Mm. They immediately conclude that that must have come from the unfortunate Salay delegate. I should say this diplomatic mission is the B plot in a very subpar episode about an energy entity possession of a. F- Possessing a couple of the members of the Enterprise crew and also the ship. So it's really, really, really dumb. <laughs> Needless to say, this is not one of Star, Star Trek's best, but it has provided McBann and his writing staff with the inspiration for a very funny uh, joke 37 years later. If you ever do, go back and watch Crisis Point again and watch as Captain Freeman encounters Mariner's actions and informs everyone that the Prime Directive prohibits Starfleet from interfering in their planetary politics. See if you can catch the rat overlord look at one of the lizards as he licks his chops. And also notice how nervous the lizards are after they see that. Right, right. But it's really funny. I mean, they really do play it up. So, so just to uh, make sure everybody understands, we're saying go back and watch Crisis Point. We're not saying to go and watch no, don't. I, the I, Next Generation I have told episode. You, I have told you everything you need to know about Lonely Among Us. You don't ever have to watch it. <laughs> ever. That's probably one of those scripts that was originally written for Star Trek Phase 2. Right, right. They just repurposed it. Yeah. yeah. So, well, now it's time for other Star Trek news. We're first going to talk about the Emmy Awards. We, You know, we had been neglecting to say in the last couple of weeks that um, Star Trek Picard won its first Emmy Award last month mm-hmm. for Outstanding Prosthetics Makeups. So, congratulations to the prosthetics team for that award. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah. Okay, and next up, let's we'll talk about Star Trek the pod directive. We wanted to take time to recommend the listen to the third installment of the of the podcast because it's really very good. You really sh- you I think very you enjo- I think you would enjoy listening to it. Um, now flying solo with the with the hosting duties this week, Tawny Newsom, voice actor of Lower Decks Mariner, was joined by three other black women connected with Star Trek. Uh, the podcast guests include Michelle Hurd, who plays Rafi on Star Trek Picard, Angelica Jade Bastian, a staff writer for the online magazine Vulture, was also in attendance, and then Kendra James, who's the managing editor for StarTrek.com. The women engaged in a thought-provoking discussion about black culture as it's portrayed in Star Trek lore. Now, we appreciated how Tawny and Angelica Champion Deep Space Nine as the best of the Star Trek series. Well, it is. <laughs> Angelica especially focused on the depiction of Captain Sisko as a loving, nurturing African-American father to his son. 
Although the show premiered 27 years ago, this demonstration of a caring relationship between a black father and son is still not a common occurrence. Right, and that's a that's a shame. That's a shame, yes. And Joker also made another major distinction between the depiction of Cisco and other Star Trek black characters. Cisco is rooted in black culture based in New Orleans. Thus, his characterization is greatly informed by this heritage, history, cuisine, language, relationships, and philosophy of life. With the exception of Uhura in the classic series, the other black characters have tended to be more assimilated as part of a white Eurocentric culture in which Shakespeare is revered as the model of high culture. Even jazz, America's first major indigenous music form created, created in part by black people, is practiced and exalted by First Officer Riker, a white male, while Commander Geordi LaForge displays no connection to his racial heritage. Everybody that is a friend or that is a romantic interest on the part of Geordi is white. Right. Throughout Star Trek, white characters are allowed to have white friends or, or, or if they are from a specific cultural background, they've had character you know friends that have come from that cultural or ethnic group that's right Chekhov had a girlfriend on the original series um there were a number of people that are were associated to both Picard and other characters who come from who were supposed to be French (laughs) (laughs) but but just as British as he is spoke just as British as he is but um but when it comes to when you can name, but but you know, but you have very few instances where you can name a black character that has other black friends or romantic interests outside of DS Nine. Right. DS Nine is the clear exception, um, along with the upcoming third season of Discovery. If the hints provided in the trailer give us any kind of indication, right. there's going to be a romantic relationship between Michael and Book. Book, right, who, um, you know, appears to have the identity of a black male. Right. Well, last time I checked, that's what a black man looked like. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't know what, what, a, what a thousand years from now what they're going to look like, but I got a good indication they're going to look just like that. <laughs> so we were intrigued by Newsom's comment that she was unaware her character was the lead of Lower Decks right. until she came to a table read for the first episode. Although Newsom did not voice this opinion, we believe this was a strategy by the network not to publicize her as the black lead to avoid biased reactions about the network casting another black actress as the head of another another Star Trek show after doing so for Star Trek Discovery. Before Lower Decks premiered, one saw hints that Mariner was a major character, but it was not until watching the first several episodes that the audience could surmise Mariner is the lead character. And to be honest with you, we should say it's not the majority of fans who have an issue with either um, Michael Burnham or Mariner. It is a fringe group of folks. It's a fringe group. Who, yeah. who either who who for a number of reasons don't seem to have caught up on the ideals that Star Trek actually supports. That's right. Equity, diversity, inclusion are actually at the core of what Star Trek is all about. Right. And so women being positions of authority 
should be something that you celebrate and not really question. Right. So and 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 then people of color being in those positions as well is something that you should celebrate and not question. So um, we're we're happy for this opportunity, and um, we're really excited that she is also excited for how it's going to play out. Mm-hmm. The final topic they focused on was a review of the infamous interracial kiss scene between Captain Kirk and Lieutenant Uhura in the original series episode, Plato's Stepchildren. The kiss is historic because it was the first kiss between a black and black person and a white person shown on television. The women recognized its historic significance, but expressed a lot of discomfort with it since it was a forced kiss between them by aliens using powerful telekinetic powers, as well as they highlighted the fact that following that act, Kirk is forced to get a whip and then beat beat Uhura. Well, to, as, act, to look like he's going to beat her. Yeah. He didn't actually beat her with the whip. Yeah. Anyway, there's a whip and there's a black woman about to be hit with it. Right. And, and this is all for the amusement of the <laughs> All aliens. for the amusement of these white folks sitting up there quite comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. So this originally airing in 1968, Plato's Stepchildren is certainly not a favorite episode of ours, but we do want to challenge some of the statements made in the podcast. It was theorized by the women that the kiss had to seem forced to be acceptable to television's general managers in the American South. While the series only received a few negative complaints about the kiss, no one knows for sure how many stations actually aired it when it was first released throughout the United States. However, we do know the BBC did not air it in the UK due to its depictions of sadism and torture in the show that was broadcast during the children's hour. Right, because Star Trek, as well as Doctor Who, was considered children's entertainment. Yes. Also, the interracial kiss was originally to occur between Spock and Uhura, but William Shatner, who played Kirk, had to seem rewritten so he would kiss Uhura. He did so because he knew it would be a, a historic event and wanted it to be involved him, not Leonard Nimoy, who played Spock. Boy, you know. Typical Shatner. Typical, yeah, that, that's one way of putting it. Yeah. Also, Nichelle Nichols, who played Uhura, was dealing with other issues related to the show that added another layer of a complexity to playing this role. Series creator Gene Roddenberry was a known womanizer who had affairs with other women throughout his two marriages. While married to his first wife, he had affairs with the secretarial staff at the LAPD during his time as a police officer. Also during the first marriage, he had affairs with both Nichelle Nichols and Majel Barrett. At the same time. At the same time. Yes. And have you seen a picture of Gene Roddenberry? <laughs> I'm just saying. Anyway, um, Roddenberry wanted this arrangement to continue, but in her autobiography, Nichols said she did not want to continue to be the other woman to the other woman. <laughs> and I, so during her time on the show, Nichelle was dealing with the stress of trying to maintain a career under 
highly sexist and racist conditions. Plato's stepchildren was indeed a reflection of those times, which was which was seen as acceptable fare. Mm-hmm. We're certainly not condoning her decision to subject herself to those conditions, yet one should understand the restrictive parameters she experienced as a black woman in Hollywood during the late 1960s. Definitely. So that was that podcast. It was really very interesting. So we, you know, we really want to recommend that everybody tune into that. Remember, new episodes drop weekly on Mondays until November 9th. Fans can subscribe or download Star Trek, the pod directive via StarTrek.com, as well as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other podcasting apps. Okay, let's do a few updates on Star Trek film projects. Um, in a recent article that was published on the in the online magazine uh, Cinema Blend, it appears that Zachary Quinto and Christopher Pine have voiced support for a fourth Star Trek film set in the Calvin universe. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Quinto, as you know, plays Spock, stated recently. We talked about it all the time as crew of the Enterprise. We're all incredibly close friends in real life, and I think all of us would welcome the opportunity to go back and keep telling those stories. Seems like a bit of a saturated market at this point, so I'm not so sure what the plans are for the feature film version of the franchise, but we're all here if they want to beam us up. Pine also recently weighed in on the topic, commenting, I'm like the last person to find anything out. I know that Paramount is coming out of having restructured a bit and kind of a major corporate restructuring. So hopefully when all the dust settles, something concrete will come out of it and we'll get to work. I'd love to do it. Time will tell if the Calvin Universe Star Trek cast will have another opportunity to put on those uniforms. You know, you know, I will go see it if they do do a fourth one, but it's not the sort of thing that I am looking forward to. I think it needs to be dead. <laughs> I just think it needs to be dead. I think we need to say, have said goodbye. Let's move on. And, 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 and for a couple of reasons, it's, my, my dislike of those movies is just one. But another reason is that, you know, you know, um, Anton Yelchin is dead. Okay, so so there, it's not the crew, and you know, and putting somebody else in that they, position. They could, they could do that. Putting somebody else in that secondary position, character. Putting someone else in that role. It's, it's not would as, be. A, 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 so I, so I they won't problem. have that role. So they won't have that role. They're not going to put somebody in there as Chekhov. So they have to talk about Chekhov well, not being there. Chekhov. And rem- remember this, in the Wrath of Khan, Chekhov was not on the Enterprise. I got Chekhov that. I was got that. elsewhere. So it's, so. But it's the Calvin universe, so anything can happen. <laughs> anything can happen, y'all. Okay, so anyways, <laughs> in closing, we'll be back next week with a review of episode 10, which is the season one finale of Lower Decks. But until that time... Like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on, on Twitter on Facebook, and at our website, StarTrekAOD.net, where we have offered 
additional articles on Star Trek canon, interesting sidebar issues, and aspects of the show. Also, if you really enjoy this this podcast, please give us a like or um, send out, share this with friends and family that you know that are connected to Star Trek. Yeah. We'd like to grow the com- community, and we definitely, we definitely want to hear from you. So also email the show at Star Trek aod at gmail.com but until then live long and prosper